This is a question that has interested me for very long. Um, and I will apologize like I did last time. I'm not, I'm a neurosurgeon, I'm not a professional ethicist, uh, and I'm certainly not a lawyer or trained in the law. Uh, what I'm going to do is essentially go through elements of these questions that have been ramifying for me for quite a while, for which I don't have answers, uh, and probably ones that I might leave you more confused on than you started now. So this is a quote I showed last time from Paul Boddington, who's a neuroscientist and uh, philosopher at Oxford University. And I think it's one that's worth, again, just going through again as grounding. Ethics is about how we relate to human beings, how we relate to the world, how we understand what it is to live a human life, or what our end goals of life are. And just like I did last time, I'm going to start first with cases. Like we talked about before, medicine is a practical ethics. It's by nature case-based or casuistic. And perhaps, I know there's a couple lawyers here, we'd argue that the law is frankly the same. The law tries to come to greater conclusions based on actual cases, uh, much in the way that medicine does. And keep these cases in mind, because they'll come up later. I think all of us kind of have a general idea of what medical futility might mean. And keep that in mind as I tell you about these six cases. So case number one is a 22-year-old woman. She's a healthy woman. She's got no significant past medical history. Uh, she had been dieting and uh, doing so simply by fasting. Um, she and her friends had been out for drinks, and she had taken a sedative uh, as well. Uh, this was in the late 70s. And Marcus, who's a little older than me, tells me that that's what they used to do back then. <laughs> uh, she was brought home by her friends, uh, and after she was put to bed, uh, she was found unresponsive and not breathing. They called the paramedics. Uh, on their initial assessment, she was found to be. She, she, was, found, <laughs> she was found not to be breathing uh, and severely anoxic, meaning that her blood oxygen levels were remarkably low. Secondary, it's thought to hypoventilation, likely related to toxicities of alcohol in the sedative. She did not go into cardiac arrest, which is what happens when young people are anoxic for a prolonged period of time. And she was resuscitated in the hospital. But the consequences of this event were severe and permanent. And she remained ventilator dependent meaning she was not able to sustain breathing on her own uh, in what we call a persistent vegetative state. What I mean by that in medical terms is that she had reestablished some element of sleep-wake cycles, but the element of wakefulness was not with any sort of interactive recognition of the outside world. Case number two is a 62-year-old woman who had had mild progressive neurologic symptoms that were not well definable by her physicians for about seven years. She had some elements of hand weakness, which were manifesting in difficulty in brushing her teeth and using a fork, then some difficulties with her gait. And these issues became severe enough that she finally was assessed by a neurologist and given the diagnosis of ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS is a progressive neurologic degenerative disease, uh, which 
finally results in paralysis. And death is usually due to loss of respiratory drive and function. At the time of her initial presentation to neurology and diagnosis, she was requiring a cane for ambulation. And she was able to dress with some assistance to get a sense of how disabled she was. Case number three is an 86-year-old woman. She had what we call a mechanical fall. She slipped at home and fractured her hip. Uh, she required hip replacement surgery to fix this. Her hospitalization was complicated. Uh, she developed pneumonia, which required her intubation. While she was intubated, she had a cardiac arrest uh, and an anoxic brain injury. Uh, and this, again, resulted in an irreversible persistent vegetative state. Case number four is a 16-month-old girl. She was diagnosed with a phenomenon called anencephaly by prenatal ultrasound. Anencephaly is lack of development of the cerebral cortex. Uh, she was ventilator dependent at birth uh, and remained ventilator uh, dependent throughout. Uh, she, was, she underwent tracheostomy placement and placement of a feeding tube, both of which were necessary because she did not have enough neurologic function to protect her airway, to clear her secretions, or to swallow food. Uh, over the first three months of her life, she had multiple hospitalizations all related to respiratory distress that required intubation. If you're not depressed yet, by the way. Uh, so case number five is a 13-year-old girl. She had a normal birth history, but she uh, had a slow developmental history. Uh, at every time point, she did not meet her cognitive or physical benchmarks appropriate for her age. Uh, she was finally, at the age of eight, diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease of unknown etiology. Uh, at 13, she was admitted to hospital with dysphagia or with difficulty with swallowing. While in hospital, she became stuporous and then comatose. And she finally required intubation because her neurologic condition and level of awareness was so poor. Uh, and underwent tracheostomy and placement of a feeding tube. Case number six is a 61-year-old man. He underwent uh, brain surgery craniotomy for resection of a benign tumor called a meningioma. That surgery was complicated by bacterial meningitis. And that bacterial meningitis resulted in severe brain injury, which resulted in, again, an irreversible persistent vegetative stage. And he was, as well, ventilator dependent. Those six cases, again, keep in mind, they will come up later, and they've all been, none of these are my patients, none of these are, are, are narratives that I've constructed. These are all uh, medical cases which have been critical to really the history of medical futility and ethics. These are a couple slides that I showed um, last time we were together, uh, and I'll go through them again, because I'll say for myself, this discussion of what futility means is absolutely intrinsic to how I understand myself as a physician and what I think of as my professional identity. Each physician feels two roles. Uh, this is again, this is from Kreuss and Kreuss. Kreuss was 
uh, at one time the um, dean of the medical school at McGill. Each physician fills two roles, that of the healer and of the professional. Even before recorded history, mankind required healers. With the development of science, the healer learned to cure. So society's expectations of medicine are many. These are, these are some, and perhaps some of them debatable. But the expectation is that we as physicians will act as healers, that we will be competent in our role of doing so, that we will offer our services with the intention of best effect, that we will do so with morality and integrity, that our actions will be towards the promotion of the public good, and that our actions will be transparent and ones to which we are accountable. Conversely, the expectations that medicine has in defining itself and its role in society, and again, these aren't ones that necessarily I speak for medicine and say are case, are that we will have autonomy, that our relationships will be construed in trust, that we will have a monopoly on the identity of physicianhood, that our actions will bring with them status and reward, that we'll, given, we'll be given the opportunity for self-regulation, and that we will have the opportunity to do our work within a functioning healthcare system. And this is not limited to medicine, but codes of professional ethics rest on the basic premise that professionals have an adequate control over their goods and services. This becomes a difficult thing when we start talking about medical futility, and hopefully that will become clear over the next uh, little while. So futility comes from a Latin word that means a container with a wide mouth and a narrow base from which water can be drawn, and it would immediately spill. It gives you a sense of kind of the nature of this. Medical futility, is a treatment that per a physician's determination, and I put that in brackets for a reason, offers no therapeutic benefit to the patient. I'll tell you this is inherently difficult. Medicine is not, for all we wish it to be, an exact science. And the probabilistic nature of medicine and the value judgments that are inherent in evaluating what probability means in medicine problematized attempts to define what feudal care actually is. Futility has to be defined in terms of the futility of achieving specific ends. In other words, you have to ask futility in relation to what? And that is value-laden. Medical utility may require asking, is treatment worthwhile to the individual? And that's quite a different question than this one that I won't be covering in the talk, which is that of economic utility, meaning is the benefit worthwhile to society? And you'll remember that that's part and parcel of the clause of our uh, social contract to society that we will be sensible with the limited resources that we have. Schneiderman defined futility as a conclusion of common sense notions and widely, widely accepted statistical assumptions about acceptable levels of probability. That's a long-winded way of saying that to some degree what we try to use is past experience 
and medical knowledge garnered through study to try to make sense and be predictive of what might be apparent in this particular case. He describes two broad conceptions of futility. One is quantitative and the other qualitative. So quantitative futility is care that produces no physiologic effect at a given level of probability. Uh, the Hastings Center released a report in 1978 that stated that physicians may withhold care that is determined to be physiologically futile. That comes up for me often as a cancer surgeon. The diagnosis of cancer does not mandate the requirement of treatment. We don't, for example, offer surgery for patients who have diffusely metastatic disease. This doesn't solve the issue of benefit versus effective therapy. For example, in some of the cases I showed before, mechanical ventilation is sustaining in life in a comatose patient. It will not resolve their comatose state. Whether you consider that treatment futile depends again on what your goal of care is. And the difficulty with quantitative futility is that it fails in the face of medical uncertainty. And this is the case in medicine that probability does not equate to certainty. And it is almost always impossible for us to speak in certain terms. This is juxtaposed to the idea of qualitative futility, which is care that produces effects the physicians perceive to be of no benefit. And this is, in other words, being honest to the idea that this notion is value-laden. For example, <coughs> mechanical ventilation in a comatose patient who has diffuse anoxic brain injury and is in a persistent vegetative state, that is a futile act because it will not resolve their poor state of being. Or, again, for another example, CPR in a patient who codes in the setting of diffuse end-stage metastatic disease. This idea presumes, and to some degree allows, a physician to make a decision in the best interest of her patient. It's hard even for me to say this without noticing the chauvinistic undertones of it, that a physician is deciding what's best. The other side of it, I think, has been gently articulated in the medical literature, which is one of our goals is to try to prevent the perpetual prisoner of medical care. Uh, Stell said that there are nested ends for diagnostic and therapeutic efforts, that value is dependent upon the expected or possible end result. In other words, value is not something independent of outcome. So by its nature, the idea of qualitative futility is normative. A judgment of medical futility made for a treatment that is seen to have a physiological effect but is believed to have no benefit. This is value dependent and value judgment laden. Conversely, Qualitative futility conflicts directly with established notions of patient autonomy. Right? This is a decision based on a value articulated by 
medicine or specifically by a medical practitioner. It's based on physician perception. And I'll ask this question, who decides that a treatment will not achieve its goal? And who decides the goal? Where does that decision and the authority for that decision lie? Uh, this is from uh, a ethicist at the University of Miami, uh, not a physician, but uh, an ethicist who works closely with physicians. Uh, are these futility? So a treatment that will be achieved that will achieve its goal about one percent of the time, with minimal risks to the patient and small cost. A treatment that will achieve its goal less than one percent of the time, with very high risks <coughs> to the patient and at a small cost. Or a treatment that will achieve the goal less than one percent of the time, with very high risks to the patient and at very high cost. We talked about uh, uh, this third. Uh, uh, this, this third element last week of these cancer drugs that have come out and shown to have statistically significant but minimal improvements in survival at remarkable cost. And uh, as I brought up last week, Memorial Sloan Kettering in deciding not to allow patients access to a new multiple myeloma drug that added to about six months of, uh, to survival in patients with end-stage disease. Felt it necessary to write a, an editorial in the New York Times defending the reasoning behind their diagnosis, or their, sorry, behind their decisions. So there, there are intrinsic tensions here. Again, what I'll say here is that you're seeing there's a distinction between physician identification of futility and concepts of personal autonomy that are also critical for physicians and goals of physicians in their interaction with patients. So some of the tensions. One is the inevitability of death and illness, which is something that we as physicians are not always particularly good at helping our patients engage with and that in general, most of us are not particularly good or capable of engaging with. Second are the limitations of scientific medicine. We are not able to collapse the distance between probability and certainty. And when we speak to expectations with actual patients in actual situations, to some degree, we are taking liberties with what probability allows us to say. Third, there are not true consensus between physicians among patients of what the appropriate ends of medicine and medical care are. Fourth, there is a limitation of the availability of resources. I'll tell you that is nowhere more acutely felt than it is, frankly, here, where we have a universal healthcare system, but do not, as physicians, have the resource to actually make that system have equal or appropriate access. Fifth, this is a social issue. There are religious, <coughs> social, cultural elements to this that change the valence of how we think of what meaning and meaningful treatments are. And six, there are some inherent conflicts of interest. 
there are times when we are dealing with medical futility where the end goals of the physician do not necessarily align with the end goals of her patient. So what makes a treatment unethical? <coughs> so patients could pursue treatment toward ends for which medical treatments should not be employed. The treatment could violate a particular physician's personal or personal understanding of her professional ethics. But the treatment could not be the best use of society's scarce healthcare resources. All of these are critical. Here are some possible examples. So patients could pursue treatment toward ends for which medical treatment should not be employed. For example, continued mechanical ventilation for a patient who is in a persistent vegetative state. Treatments that we consider what would be called salvage, that leave individuals severely disabled and unable to function within personal or social life. Does this count? Survival with moderate deficits. And I'll say, what about someone who survives and has chronic pain? And that I'll bring up later. The treatment could also violate a particular physician's personal ethics. Uh, for example, abortion, or something that comes up in my field, performing what's called a decompressive surgery to relieve pressure in patients who have massive strokes. We, in medicine, are much better at managing the second of these than the first. It's quite easy to deal with concerns regarding violations of personal ethics as a doctor. I send you to someone else who doesn't feel that way about abortion. Or I send you to a partner <coughs> of mine who doesn't feel uncomfortable doing an emergency surgery for someone with a massive disabling stroke. And except in places where resources are remarkably limited, it's often possible to facilitate that. It's much harder in this first question. And, and that's, I'll say, that's probably where ethically the most interesting questions lie in, and probably the most difficult to answer. So again, let's go back to Paul Bonington. So ethics is social, and it is time dependent, and it evolves. Um, it is a moving target. And I'm going to show you this. So these are, this is case number one. So Karen Quinlan was a 22-year-old nursing student uh, who was dieting to lose weight uh, and went out with her friends uh, and drank quite a bit and took a few sedatives and then came home. Her friends found her unresponsive. Uh, paramedics were called. She was resuscitated, but not before she had severe, irreversible anoxic brain injury. You'll see the date here, I think, 1976. This was one of the first test cases in the American, in the American legislative system, I'm sorry, uh, judicial system for medical ethics. She was left in a persistent vegetative state, mechanically, dependent on mechanical ventilation and dependent on external 
feeding to maintain our nutritional state. Her parents, when they realized that this was an irreversible situation, asked that she be taken off mechanical ventilation. The physicians at the hospital at which she was being cared for refused. And in fact, the district attorney of the state threatened to convict any doctor who would take her off life support with secondary murder. This was challenged in the courts. And what their answer was, I think, is is quite instructive. And, and I'll read this. I know you guys can all see it. But we repeat for the sake of emphasis and clarity that upon the concurrence of the guardian and family of Karen, should the responsible attending physicians conclude that there is no reasonable possibility of Karen's ever emerging from her present comatose condition to a cognitive sapient state, and that the life support apparatus now being administered to Karen should be discontinued, they shall consult with the hospital ethics committee or like body of the institution in which Karen has been hospitalized. If that consultative body agrees that there is no reasonable possibility of Karen's ever emerging from her present comatose condition to a cognitive sapient state, the present life support system may be withdrawn, and said action shall be without any civil or criminal liability thereof on the part of any participant, whether guardian, physician, hospital, or others. I'll make note of this. There are a number of demands being made here that I will say are difficult to absolutely satisfy. And there is no absolute in any of this. So no reasonable possibility is a very broadly stated term, and not one that um, necessarily demands or allows consensus among different individuals. Saying things like, let's see, ever uh, in a cognitive sapient state. Again, these are absolutes that don't have good determinants. Whatever the case, this was probably the first iteration of the patient's rights movement in uh, the US uh, and allowed the idea that there could be such a thing as futile care and that in situations in which medically defined decisions of futility were reached, care could be withdrawn. This is something that has remarkable reverberations here. Uh, it's something you may know. And again, I'm going to give these two cases just as juxtaposition to how remarkably, how remarkably plastic our ideas of what ethics are and how much the iteration of that in law and society changes. So this is a recent case that most of you probably know. I'm going to jump ahead, that led to this statute uh, that was tested basically um, by patient number two, the 63-year-old woman diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. 
So ALS is a disease for which we have no treatment. We have some data to suggest that we have medications that can slow its progress. Uh, not all of us even uh, find much satisfaction in those data. We certainly don't have a cure. And we know it to be a progressive illness. It's a progressive illness in which patients remain cognitively intact, but slowly lose all physical capability. We sadly have data from the medical literature that shows that we can extend life in patients with ALS by performing tracheostomy and placing feeding tubes. It gives you a sense of kind of the horror of what it means to die of this disease. This suit uh, was brought with the request by that patient to be allowed physician-assisted death. And it has led to legislation which enables us as physicians to participate in that. It's actually it's a very interesting process. I'm actually going through the training now to be able to do this. And it doesn't necessarily have any actual or real ramifications for me. I work at St. Michael's Hospital, which if you can't notice by the name, is a Catholic institution that would not allow me to participate in physician-assisted uh, death. Uh, but it's, it's something that I feel should be an element I understand well enough to direct my patients if they have that desire. It's remarkable. If you look at what legislatively was stated for being eligibility for medical assistance in time, these are all very sensible and fair. One of their articulations, though, from a medical standpoint, is again, it's very hard to define. They have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. And they've tried here to define what that is. And I will say, as a physician, I find it less than satisfying or clear. And in fact, what the current iteration of the law allows is remarkably broad and includes things like chronic back pain. Um, and the difficulty, I think, for many of us in medicine at the moment is that these, this law has not actually been tested in our legal system yet in any meaningful way. And there's actually quite a lot of fear in the medical community of unintentionally overstepping what the law feels is appropriate. There have been numerous attempts to define what futility means in the legislature. This is uh, the amendment to Virginia Healthcare Decision Act, uh, which was passed in 1987. Um, Maryland did something similar just a couple of years later. These all came in response to lawsuits uh, that involved futility decisions. Both of these protect, as you can see, the idea of medical autonomy. So nothing in this article shall be construed to require a physician to prescribe or render medical treatment to a patient that the physician determines to be medically or ethically inappropriate. The other side of this, though, that I'm not showing is that the law tried at the same time to protect patient autonomy. 
And the other side of this is that the requirement was made that if a physician decides or if a physician feels that the treatment asked for is not something that is fairly delivered, that physician has the onus to find someone alternative who can consult with the patient and is willing to offer that desired care. There's no clear aspect to where the end point of that is. If a patient comes to me with glioblastoma that I feel is non-operative, it's not quite clear if my ethical demands if they want surgery are to send them to another patient, or, I'm sorry, to another physician. And if that physician said the same thing as me, do I have to add infinitum, send them on until they find someone who will go through with what they wish? That's not quite clear for me. But both of these statutes provided for transfer of the patient when physicians determined that the requested treatment is inappropriate. This has actually been easier said than done. And many of the test cases that I'll bring up coming forward, hospitals have been left in positions where they don't want to, where they don't feel it appropriate to comply with a patient's family's wishes, but have been unable to actually find an accepting hospital or physician who uh, will assume care. I'll move past this here. So, Getting on to case number three. So Helga Wengel was 85 years old when she fell and broke her hip. Uh, her operative and post-operative course were complicated by pneumonia, which required intubation. She was at a long-term care facility and ventilator dependent when she had a cardiac arrest and was left in a persistent vegetative state. Her physicians approached her husband uh, with the request that she be made do not resuscitate and that they de-escalate care. And he refused to withdraw what her physician said were, was futile care. A petition was placed by the hospital to replace him as a guardian. And the decision of the court was that Miss Wangley and her estate were best served by appointment of her husband as her guardian. And in doing so, what the court articulated was that withdrawal or de-escalation of care required consent and that medical consent when not able to be given by the individual being cared for is best given by a competent family member. In Re Baby K, this is uh, case number four. Uh, this young girl was born in October of 1992 with anencephaly. She was medically stabilized at birth. Um, her medical team recommended supportive care, which they articulated as warmth, nutrition, and hydration. They also recommended that the baby be made do not resuscitate. Her mother refused that and asked that mechanical breathing assistance be given if the child required it. At her second readmission, the hospital brought a declaratory judgment action 
to determine whether the hospital was required to continue, continue delivering care that it deemed medically and ethically inappropriate. This case made it to the district court for the East District of Virginia, which is an important court. There are two Supreme Court justices who have sat in the last 30 years who came from this uh, jurisdiction. Her mother was found to be the appropriate decision maker for baby case, so very much like Helga Weddle. The, the courts have generally said that de-escalation of care requires consent and that consent belongs in terms of authority to the individual at question or if that person is not capable of giving consent to the closest family member. This was confirmed by the Fourth Circuit Court and the mother's constitutional and common law rights as a parent to make medical decisions were articulated as the reasons why. And interestingly, what the court also articulated was that its job in law should be to make presumptions in favor of life. And interestingly, the decision actually made the point of saying that a decision otherwise would lead to a conclusion that was final. There is no reversibility of death. And interestingly, this absolute is the one thing in terms of medical futility that we have. As a doctor, I cannot, with absolute certainty, state that someone in a persistent vegetative state will not at some time emerge. That's, I, I can give a probability that is negligible and remarkably close to zero that is quite different than absolute. I can guarantee that that individual will die without support. And the courts articulated the fact that those are two different things. <clears throat> in re Jane Doe, this is case number five. This is a 13-year-old girl with a neurodegenerative disease of unknown etiology who finally uh, ended in an irreversible coma with what her doctors said was no hope of meaningful recovery. Her parents actually disagreed to de-escalation of care or DNR. Her mother wished her to be DNR and to withdraw her from life support, and her father did not. The court disagreed in this case with physician concerns that continued treatment, meaning intubation, uh, giving nutrition through a feeding tube, that these are abusive and inhumane treatments. Um, and actually articulated that medicine needs to move away from paternalistic views of what is best for a patient and toward principles of individual autonomy. They once again articulated the fundamental right of parents to direct medical treatment for their children. And one more, once again, as in previous, articulated a presumption in favor of life. I'll say much of Canadian understandings of medical futility are based legally on these precedents set in the American legal system. Uh, this is case number six. And um, this is, I think, a good summation, frankly, of where all of this leads us now. This is a case that occurred not far from us. Uh, case number six, as you'll recall, was of a gentleman in his 60s who underwent craniotomy for resection of a benign brain tumor. 
His surgery was complicated by bacterial meningitis, which left him in a persistent vegetative state. This gentleman was cared for at Sunnybrook Hospital uh, by one of my colleagues. Uh, this is from the court brief. So R is unconscious and has been on life support since October 2010. The physicians responsible for R's care believe that he was in a persistent vegetative state that all appropriate treatments for his condition had been exhausted, and that there was no realistic hope for his medical recovery. I'll say there's a very, there's a nice subtlety here. The, the, they say the physicians responsible believed, which is quite different than no. In their opinion, continued life support would not provide any medical benefit to R and may cause harm. They sought to remove his life support and to provide palliative care until his expected death. S, R's wife and substitute decision maker, refused to provide her consent and applied to the Ontario Supreme Court of Justice for an order restraining the physicians from withdrawing R from life support without her consent. So this was based on the request by the legal team for his wife was based on the Healthcare Consent Act, which states that as physicians we are not allowed except in emergency situations, to take steps of medical care without the consent of our patients. And the argument of their legal team was that de-escalation of care is in itself a care decision and requires consent. So the HCCA does not permit a patient to dictate treatment. Neither the words nor the scheme of the act contemplate a patient's right to stop a doctor from withdrawing treatment that is no longer medically effective or is even harmful. Such an extension of patient autonomy to prevent a patient to insist on the continuation of treatment that is medically futile would have a detrimental impact on the standard of care and legal, ethical, and professional duties in the practice of medicine. The role of patient autonomy must be balanced with the physician's role, expertise, and advice. As well, there are a myriad of important interests, such as the integrity of our healthcare system, at stake. Every once in a while, it turns out lawyers actually are articulate and intelligent people. The ultimate decision whether to withdraw life-sustaining treatment must respect the medical or physical consequences of withdrawal or continuation of life support, and also the personal autonomy, bodily integrity, and human dignity of the patient. A doctor cannot be required to act outside of the standard of care and contrary to his or her professional duties. So this is a remarkably articulate <coughs> expression of something that is remarkably complex and difficult to make sense of. And I'd argue, if you look at the multiple clauses here, they're not necessarily reconcilable. <coughs> so this comes from a legal institute that um, gives kind of explanations of legal precedent to lay people, includes myself. So what does this decision not mean? So the decision does not uphold the right of families to demand life support. The decision does not mean that there is a right to treatment at the end of life. It does not mean that families can demand any treatment for their loved ones. 
It uh, does not mean that family members suddenly have a role in life and end of life decisions as though they did not have an important role before. It does not mean that life support cannot be withdrawn in this particular case. And it does not mean that families always get to make the final decisions involving withdrawal of life support. The judgment does mean that the decision to withdraw life support requires consent. And interestingly, what the courts said, what the Supreme Court finally said, was that this was not a case to be handled by the courts. The courts, in their mind, had already articulated the critical elements to make sense of this case, which are creation of a consent board that is meant to review these cases and help come to decisions. And the court's articulation essentially was simply that the act of de-escalation of care is one that requires the consent of family. That does not demand the family's decision to be the final answer. But it actually takes legislation out of the process of that decision. So there, in Ontario, we have something called a consent and capacity board, which is actually made up of ethicists and physicians. Kim, is that, I think it's just medicine, right? Physicians and ethicists. Um, and what the court said was that this case and its jurisdiction belongs there. Uh, it, I actually find this remarkably interesting. When, when this case was decided upon, I'll say a lot of my colleagues in medicine felt that we were losing some autonomy uh, or, or being imposed upon by the courts with this decision. That it, it meant that we were being excluded from conversations of futil futility and end of life. And I think it actually means something quite different. And I'll say it's much more refined than, I think, where we are legally in the US. It's essentially saying that we have bodies of expertise outside of our jurisdictional system that are specifically meant to try to make sense of these cases. And that's, for the moment at least, where it belongs. I'm not going to talk about these challenges since Rizzoli, uh, just for the sake of time. But to get back to the idea of futility. So Brody says there are four reasonable justifications for physicians' decisions to withhold what are medically considered to be futile treatments. One is that the goals of medicine are to heal. That its goal is to try to reduce suffering and to offer treatments that do not achieve these goals subverts the, the purpose of medicine. The second is that physicians are bound to high standards of scientific competence. Uh, as a scientist, I might take some issue with that, but we try. And uh, offering ineffective treatments deviates from professional standards. Third, if physicians offer treatments that are ineffective, they resist, they, they, I'm sorry, they risk becoming what he terms quacks, but basically they lose their integrity, uh, both in terms of their individual uh, sense of self as physicians, but probably more importantly, 
they compromise medicine as a profession. And fourth, physicians are justified in risking harm to patients. This is, I do this every day. I'm a surgeon. Physicians are justified in risking harm to patients only when there is a reasonable chance of benefit. Forcing physicians to inflict harmful procedures on patients makes them agents of harm, not benefit. This is perhaps where the, the decision that keeping someone on mechanical ventilation and giving them parenteral nutrition through a feeding tube, uh, that those are not inhumane treatments, uh, ramifies. So the right of a patient to demand a treatment is limited by the need for physicians to provide care that meets high ethical, clinical, and scientific standards. And the difficulty is that I will say that there's not a necessary consensus of that. It's interesting. We have what we call tumor board every week, where the three of us at St. Michael's who perform neuro-oncologic procedures sit with the radiation oncologists and the medical oncologists and the cancer nurses and go through cases and try to come to some consensus about what is appropriate care. And the reason we have bodies like that is because we don't often find it that we have consensus otherwise. That individuals in medicine don't necessarily always come to some proscribed answer. And oftentimes there is no proscribed answer. And we need these bodies of consensus to make up for the lack of, I'd say that the inherent lack of scientific rigor in practicing medicine in a practical way. So medical futility uh, Schneiderman states, is the unacceptable likelihood of achieving an effect that the patient has the capacity to appreciate as a benefit. I find that quite interesting. If you look at what patient means, it comes from the word patiens, which means one who suffers. Healing comes from the word sanatem, which means to make whole. Uh, we when we become physicians, or in, as, uh, even before we become physicians, as we take on medical education, we all still uh, receive at one point our white coat and take the Hippocratic Oath. And it's, it's quite remarkable if you think about that, that today we still do this. This happened at the University of Toronto Medical School earlier this year. It will happen again next year. And it's a remarkably solemn occasion. If you look at what that means, it begins with an ethical duty to avoid unnecessary harm. This is an ethical duty of proportionality. We often advise a patient toward a therapy with minimal gain, I'm sorry, with maximal gain at the low risk of harm. The opposite of that is what we call malpractice, which is moving a patient towards an intervention that has high risk with minimal or little chance of gain. The duties of medicine are to alleviate suffering and to restore health. That is not necessarily to prolong life. 
And the distance between those two have become all the more severe by what we can do now. We are quite good at the latter. Medical decisions and treatment are never value neutral. These are always ethical acts, and these are always complicated by our biases, whether they are cultural or personal. As physicians, I'll say we always struggle to protect and enable patient autonomy while avoiding futile interventions uh, and trying non-paternalistically to direct patients towards appropriate decisions. And it's hard for me to even say that without it sounding chauvinistic. There's a need to maintain compassion while assisting patients with difficult and often dire decisions. This is what medicine is. And I'll say I still don't know the answer to this. How do we negotiate instances in which patient and physician autonomy cannot be reconciled? There are attempts to do this. There's, um, uh, this is really some of the literature behind the creation of these consent and capacity boards. Um, people have talked about ways to try to approach issues that might result in conflict uh, or ways to approach decisions about conflict between what are thought to be futile care decisions and uh, desires by patient uh, to pursue those paths. Um, the preventive ethics approach involves shifting that burden to primary care doctors and saying to them, well, the reason that we're very bad at these decisions or we have difficulty with these decisions at end of life are that you didn't uh, have them with your patients before. Uh, I will say, speaking not as a doctor, but as uh, a husband with two kids, it's very hard to think about these things. And it's very hard to come up with answers that you could feel capable of holding to. So, what are the goals of medicine? What defines meaningful human existence? <coughs> we demean ourselves by allowing another being to exist in a state of physical despondency. These are questions that I encounter every day. These are questions that, frankly, are part of the reason why I'm uh, obsessed with what I do. Um, this is interesting. Patients of the US have a well-established right to determine the goals of their medical care and to accept or decline any medical intervention that is recommended to them by their treating physician. But do patients also have a right to receive interventions that are not recommended by their physician? And that leads to these questions. What constitutes professional integrity? What is the responsibility of professional expertise? What is expected of the compact of physicians with society? I don't, I'm asking these questions that I don't have the answers to. Um, what I'll say is that futility encompasses uncertain but very real territory in medical practice. These are things that actually exist for us and that come up, uh, come up frequently. The courts have broadly favored patient autonomy and appreciated the finality of decisions that result in death. The ethics of futility are intertwined with the ethics of doctoring, and the demands of patient autonomy and medical ethics are often not easily reconciled. This is 
a short list of references here.